Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. My guest today, Urban Student, is one of the brightest and most intuitive policy thinkers of his generation in Canada. From foreign and security policy to the Arctic and the North, demographics, federalism, languages, law, identity, and most recently, the national and global education catastrophe caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. He's been at the forefront of many major national and international policy areas and debates. He has been a key initiator of practical solutions to a number of the policy challenges of our time. He covers all of this and more in his newest book, Canada Must Think for Itself. Great to have you with us, Urban. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Russia, this is all over the news right now. And why do you think Russia is making this move at this time? I think um, there's a domestic audience and there's an international audience from the Russian perspective. The domestic audience turns on the idea that Putin has a succession problem. That is, he doesn't know who comes next. And as Russia is a very young state, people forget that. They have to secure the legitimacy of the state, even through succession, which is not obvious. Putin's been at the helm for a while, and he doesn't want to leave a state in tatters. The economy is in stagnation, even before the, the sanctions. There's It's devoid of energy. So this is, from, I think, uh, their thinking, a way of turbocharging a system that is, is not working well through a succession dynamic. Externally, Vis-a-vis -vis NATO and, and Ukraine, I presume the Russians have unfinished business because they want to secure the Western flank. And they still, for again, on their thinking, do not accept the legitimacy of many dynamics within Ukraine since the 2014 revolution, including, again, on their thinking, the legitimacy of the government in Kiev. There's pressure from Europe and the West on the Ukraine to, to join NATO. Did that have a big impact on this? Do you think? Undoubtedly, it's it's one of the one of several factors I suspect in, in in the conflict, not NATO alone, but again, there's a domestic factor that's proper to Russia, and there is the Ukrainian question, which is in part a NATO question, in part an economic question, because you, you have the Eurasian Economic Union that is also stuck on its western flank that doesn't have access to Europe. And in part, again, it's a, it's a, it's a question of the, I would say, the mental imagination of of Russians to some extent, Ukrainians, about the the ethno ethnographic geography of that space. But at core, it's a it's a post Soviet problem. When a big country like the Soviet Union collapses, you have fifteen successor countries, and each of them is fighting for legitimacy across a new space. And so these are. Border wars, unfortunately, this one is, is, is very brutal and, and with tragic consequence for regular people. With Europe being so dependent on Russian oil, uh, do you foresee anything dramatically happening there about their economy, etc.? I think it would be very difficult to tear themselves off of Russian oil and gas in any foreseeable future. But these types of conflicts take on a life of their own. So I, I guess anything is possible. But this is, we're talking about 10, 15 year trajectories by which time this conflict will have a different um, configuration. 
When it comes to Canada, you have been talking a lot about Canada and the North. Uh, let's talk about Canada for a minute in the midst of all this. Uh, Russia, China, um, and our Northland. Why should Canadians be concerned about the North? Before the concern, I, I, I would hope that we Canadians are interested in the North. I have a very different view of the North than most of my friends and colleagues in the big cities of the Canadian South. I do not see it as a frozen wasteland that is at the margins of the Federation. I see it as the center of our tomorrow. If Canada is going to have a great 21st century and almost all of my professional thinking and energies go towards that, that goal, then the North is at the center of the world, not at the margins. And Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver and Halifax become secondary. Why is that so? Because with climate change, the North opens up. Canada's major play on climate change is not to imagine that from Toronto or Halifax or St. John's, we're going to reverse the course of global climate change. It is to master our North, which opens up inexorably. The North of Canada is as big territorially as the entire European Union. Yukon is the size of France, Northwest Territory is the size of Germany, France, and Ukraine combined, and none of it bigger than both of them. All told, we have across that European Union-sized territory, 115,000 Canadians, 115,000. I think that's the size of Trois-Rivières. It's bigger than Trois-Rivières. It's the size of Ajax, Ontario. And so we can do nothing meaningful for ourselves or for the world or for defense with that demographic footprint across the territory that now opens up that abuts Russia. So Russia is not to the east of Ukraine and Europe for our mental purposes, it's directly to our north. So we need to build it up, not just through bases, but in my, in my thinking through an economic framework, trading relationships, people to people relationship, transportation, starting by a plane, not even, not even, uh, not even uh, by sea. We're close to China through the north, we're close to the Northern Europe through the north, and we're obviously in continental North America. If you tally up the markets of those geographies, we have 2 billion people at our doorstep through the north versus uh, 400,000, 400, uh, 400 million or 330 million across the, the, the continental North American market. That's a seven to one ratio, I believe, and it favors a Northern buildup. Oil and gas and going green, what is Canada doing? You know, what, what's your take on all that's happening right now with uh, backing away from oil and gas by the government and others? Well, I think the government waxes hot and cold on, on oil and gas, depending on the, the mood on social media. But nothing is for keeps, neither the green pivot nor the oil and gas hostility. We're in a bit of a ambiguous, ambivalent state from the Ottawa perspective. But global events suggest that we can do both. We obviously have oil and gas and huge natural resources in all areas. And in my thinking, to be to survive the 21st century, we need to go on all cylinders across all natural resources because we have them. Many countries don't have them and many are in need. And we, we have been obviously underplaying that, that aspect of, the, of our asset configuration. On the other hand, 
if there's a green pivot, then our best play is still to become a major country in the world demographically in power configuration diplomatic because then we can push a green pivot on our own terms rather than always saying that we will play at the margins of what the United States says of the European Union says and therefore we will be term takers rather than term setters but in both oil and gas and resources and the green play and if I'm not sure the green play is is a long-term play given some of what's happening in the world the interest for Canada must be to be a term setting country, because that is what our geography suggests this century, given some of the, the big powers at our doorstep, uh, as, I, as I described in a, in a previous answer. When we talk about Canada, you are very interesting in how you talk about it, because so many Canadians see themselves as uh, have nothing to do with the future. We just go for a ride along with whatever large uh, countries are saying and doing. Um, let's talk a little bit about Canada and what you can, what you envision for this nation if we can play, if we make the right steps. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, first of all, I do not accept the proposition that Canada is a small country. The small is in the mind. We're the yeah. second largest country in the world. We're over a century and a half old. Most countries are far smaller than us and far younger than us. I mentioned the Russia-Ukraine conflict at the start of, of the interview as one of about the post-Soviet space amongst very young countries that are barely 30 years old. We're a century and a half peaceable governance across a huge territory. So we're very, very sophisticated, very interesting. We've had a very, very difficult last two years, poor government, poor leadership across the, the jurisdictions, nationally, provincially, territorially, municipally. We cannot repeat that because the next calamities and pressures will be much greater and they will crush us because countries don't tend to last a century and a half. As a result, we need to up our game. If we up our game in the configuration that I suggested, America to our south, China to our west, China very close to us, Russia to our north and Europe to our east, if we up our game, then we will be amongst these major powers. If we do not up our game, we will be a vassal state they will play across our territory. They will crush us, or in the best case, will be a term-taking country. Whatever Washington says, whatever Beijing says, whatever Moscow says, whatever some European capitals say, those will be the terms for our Canadian existence. And I find that unacceptable. It's unacceptable first because I do not find the leaders in those capitals particularly impressive. In all cases, I don't find them smarter than us morally superior to us, or better place to tell us how we ought to live. I would like that stubbornness of thinking to be ingrained in the next generation of Canadian leaders, that we all say, when a good American colleague comes, they can be friendly, but they come with their own terms and their own interests. When they come and say, this is what ought to be done, this is how we live, and we say, the clever response is, no, thanks for doing the thinking for us. It's not, it, it's not, thank you for doing the thinking for us. It is, thanks, we'll take what we need from what you say, but who the hell are you to tell us how to live on our territory? We're Canada, we're big, we're 150 plus years old. We know our realities. The same thing from the Chinese, the Russian, the European perspective, our neighbors. That requires a shift from what you say 
from a Canadian that is comfortable and ready to take dictation and cues from powers that we imagine to be superior to us. That thinking requires work, work before the thinking. It requires not just education, it requires investment in economic assets, in um, intellectual assets, in cultural assets. We need to build up a community of Canadians, a large scale, that are prepared to think and play at that level. Otherwise, again, whatever we tell ourselves at the kitchen table or on Twitter, we will get crushed. And that's the course of history for countries that don't rise to the occasion. So that's that's the genesis of my brief on Canada. And it takes a while for us to accept that, but I would hope that the last two years will have sharpened our survival instincts. Because if we haven't drawn the right lessons, we're in big trouble. Yeah, when you look at the last two years, I think, well, if people are still asleep, they're really asleep. But I mean, when it comes down to Canada being a free country, the things that went on with COVID, I think, shock most thinking people when you go, wow, I thought we were a country that had rights and freedoms. And uh, you said the last couple of years have been brutal and we can't repeat that. Give me a quick look at the last couple of years from your perspective as what in the world happened. Well, if we're a serious country, we're going to study the last two years for the next 20. And the determination must not be, oh, that was tough, or that is once in a century, which is absurd. It's not once in a century. Mm -mm. Why not tomorrow? And why not even worse? If we're a serious country, we will study that and have a determined next leadership class across all jurisdictions, across the professions as well, that says that can never happen again. Because if it does, it will be the death of us. And not through COVID, it will just be the death of us as a, as a going concern as a country. What happened is that we had no experience of great public disaster across Canada for really, at that scale, for the entire 20th century and for much of the late 19th century. The men who created Canada at the Fathers Confederation were hard men. They were dealing with an American post-Civil War army that was ready to annex, a British imperial master that was ready to decamp, and a continent-sized territory that they neither see, saw, nor were able to travel. They really were fighting for their lives. And so Canada was created. And by many strokes of luck and some cleverness, we were able to keep going and expanding for 150 years. Canada is the size of the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire in territory combined. Even bigger than the three combined. That's how big wow. we are. So we cannot accept that we think small. And yet when this pandemic hit, we obviously overreacted and underreacted in turn, and the reaction was totally inappropriate. We reduced everything to COVID counts. The pandemic became the only legitimate reality, mental reality across all the other systems of life, which we conspired to collapse. Education, we collapsed. Business, we collapsed. National unity structures, we collapsed. The international, the social fabric thinking that everything was the pandemic. Whereas clever countries were able to see the, the, uh, the profile of the pandemic over the first few months said, okay, thankfully it's not world historical, it is serious, but 
taken in measure, we can keep other systems going. We collapsed seven or eight systems of society. The pandemic took its toll. And as we exit, we still imagine to this day that pandemic is the only thing going, which is why I co-chair a, a structure called the Canada Science and Policy Committee to exit the pandemic, which is, creates a choreography nationally to exit across eight systems of state and society across the second largest country in the world with high energy. So that we never go back to thinking that everything is one system or to sapping uh, the society and the country of, of the energy needed to keep things things going. One of the things you talk about is uh, education and children. Most people go, what's the big deal? We had, a in their mind, a serious pandemic, and so the kids stayed home from school. Uh, you know, They had to stay in their house, depending on which province you're in, and you're calling that a catastrophe. It's even worse. The education catastrophe was the worst human catastrophe of the pandemic in Canada and globally, bar none. Hmm. We just don't understand what happened at our feet. We say things like the children are resilient. These are Twitter slogans. But what happened was that as soon as we closed the schools in March of 2020, many of them closing serially for prolonged periods after, especially in leading provinces, we ended up having a large quantum of children who were ousted from all schooling together. There's a, no school at all, permanently, at very early ages. Now, if one is not interested in reality, one would say, well, they went to homeschooling, or they went to pod schooling, or their children, their parents should take care of them. I said, no, no, no. They were ousted from the system that closed, and they never came back. And now the world is opening up. We're exiting, and we have children as young as grade five, grade eight, grade nine, grade 10, that are not in any school at all, and that are not going back. We have 200,000 of them across Canada. They're in the Oliver Twist condition. What have we done? We didn't understand the systems we were closing and manipulating. And we will send these kids to early deaths at our feet. Early deaths because people must understand that Whatever we tell ourselves on Twitter, the society has no use for a, a grade eight educated child who's not been in school for two years and is now in the streets looking for work. And younger as well, and older as well, in these huge quantums. So we call these third bucket kids. They're neither in the first bucket, physical school, nor in the second bucket, virtual school. Third bucket is no school at all. 200,000 across Canada and half a billion around the world. They were all in the shopping malls and the soccer fields and the hockey arenas or the cricket pitches in South Asia two years ago. And we did this to them because we closed and manipulated systems we did not understand. So the lesson coming in is several fold. But first of all, we must find these kids and bring them back to school immediately. It should have happened last summer, last fall. But I'm still on the case. We create a structure called the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids Post-Pandemic for us all to understand what's happened, to find these kids. This should never happen. We, we did this to them. They could have been star students, right? Or they could have been poor. They could be indigenous, white, black, doesn't matter. There are a host of reasons why this happens. And the second, going back to lessons that we must distill from this is 
thou shalt never close the schools ever, ever. When you talk about meeting with a, a group of people and looking at um, reopening Canada, and you said there's eight systems. Give me a quick look at those eight systems and an overview of what did or still does Canada need to do. There are eight systems, and these systems should have been understood at the start of the management of the pandemic. But as we collapse them in the exit, we can't imagine that the exit is mask on, mask off, vaccine, non-vaccine restrictions. Because if you remove a mask and say everyone's back to normal, we still have 200,000 kids not in school. We still have huge learning gaps for everyone in the system. If you say businesses off to the races, no restrictions, you still have tens of thousands of businesses that disappeared through systems collapse and so on. The systems are COVID public health, non-COVID public health, business and the economy, education, national unity, institutions, the social fabric, and international. All told, they are they might be imagined as, as balls that we keep in the air juggling. We need to keep them in the air. The collapse of any of these systems leads to much more death than COVID did alone. But because we collapse the systems to pre-19 levels, they're not even at, not pre, at not 2019 levels, we need to energize the exits. The exit must be, as we come in on the exit committee, high energy across the systems just to get to 2019 levels. So school, off to the races. Don't zombie out of it and say, well, gradually we'll take masks off. No, 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 no. The, the strategic logic is, boom, you're off to the races. You're studying like there's no tomorrow because you're preparing for a more difficult tomorrow as well. In national unity, for instance, we erected borders across the, the territory of the second largest country in the world. Those borders must come down immediately. All regulations that, that make it difficult to, to travel the country must be removed immediately. Not, have that, not that they should have a sticky character that lasts five or 10 years and we'll remove them uh, when it suits us. So the instinct on Twitter and the Canadian instinct is steady. She goes out of an abundance of caution but the strategic architecture and the policy architecture must be high energy across yeah. all yeah. the systems. That, that is so true. A lot of people have this fear that they're going to slam us back into lockdowns uh, coming up again in the fall. And you said it's pretty much over what's gone on. Can you just address that for people who are watching saying, I think the government is just going to put us back in masks and they're going to lock us down again with whatever variant comes along. What would your opinion be on that? Well, I never like the idea of they're going to lock us down at the start. Government has a legitimate role and if the government deems that there's a, a an existential catastrophe, we have to there comes a point where you say, I hope you know what you're talking about, what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But the contours of the pandemic early on suggested, unfortunately, as I mentioned, that the government did not know what it was doing. And therefore, while there was a pandemic happening, the other measures were capricious, arbitrary, or theatrical. I mentioned the schools. After the first lockdown, of schools in March 2020, while acceptable on improvisation because it was done in most of the world, the school should have never been closed. 
So I do not accept the idea that the government may just close schools again or may just close business again. We know in equal measure that uh, as soon as government closed businesses, they didn't provide the compensating energy and capital to keep many of those businesses alive. They just disintegrated. So as a business person, I would say, I don't accept that a government can just shut me down. And by the way, why would I invest in a country which shuts down its business um, centers and business activity on a dime? Why would anyone invest in that? And surely that's also in our exit plan, which is government must restore absolute confidence that that's not how we will behave in future emergencies. So I don't accept, first of all, that, that they will shut us down. I don't know who they is. And I don't accept that they have superior Ken. There must be a proper argument. If there is ever another future shutdown, and I presume it will be not COVID, it might be another emergency, it might be another real, really serious pandemic, far more serious than COVID, or a war, or some natural disaster, a cyber attack, we don't know. Government must then assume a very extroverted posture. They must provide the compensating energy. They cannot sit back in Zoom rooms and say, we'll shut you down, but we're going home as well, and you go home, and we're all good, because government gets paid still, and those they shut down don't get paid. Right? So government needs to understand they need to provide compensating energy, capital, and, and attention for the population survives. On the pandemic as such, the exit committee has determined through huge consultation and looking at the determinations of other leading countries that the pandemic is manifestly endemic. That is, the COVID-19 virus will circulate ad infinitum, but we're not here to study a virus, not a science project. It is endemic, it will have a seasonal character, and it is perfectly manageable. Even if there, we require surge capacity here and there on a seasonal basis, again, perfectly manageable. We do not collapse the other systems. So from a systems perspective, an epidemiological perspective, uh, we're good to go. Mm -hmm. One fallacy people make, and it's a fallacy driven by otherwise clinically competent scientific class that doesn't understand public policy and also on Twitter is that the very existence of the virus suggests that there's a pandemic or that the virus is in charge. A slogan that I've heard many times. And I said, no, no, in all cases, it is a policy lead and intelligent countries lead through public policy. Science inputs into public policy. It is not public policy that inputs into science because the society does not exist to study the virus. The virus is context. It is important context. Mm -hmm. There are many other things happening. We need a policy choreography in order to, to achieve our, our ends as a society and country. Very good. Uh, you've got a new book. Why did you write it? Well, I'm desperately worried about the state and future of our country. And as we discussed, I'm worried about yeah. people presuming that tomorrow is like today. And when I started writing it, uh, I was somewhat irritated by our can very Canadian presumption that tomorrow is like today. The pandemic should show that tomorrow is not guaranteed. To guarantee a good tomorrow for Canada, which is altogether possible, we're going to have to work. To work is not enough, though. We need to put in the work so that we think at the right level, and no one's going to think for us, as I mentioned at the start. No, If we presume someone's going to think for us, 
we're going to work on their terms or live and die on their terms. But if we think for ourselves, we do it on our terms, and hopefully this will be a bright 21st century for our wonderful country. Irvin, thank you so much for being with us today. And I'm encouraging everybody to get a copy of this book, Canada Must Think for Itself, because rather than just try to deal with an existing emergency uh, and think really in a shallow way, just get out of this, we need a plan. We need a dream. We need to envision a Canada. What have we got? Where can we go? Thank you for being with me, Urban. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv.